Welcome to Our Cold Conversations. I'm your host, Jay Howard, an instructor in the Department of Communication, and today my guest is Dr. Shannon Wooden, professor in the Department of English. Dr. Wooden is the Literature Program Coordinator and also the Coordinator of the Disabilities Studies Program, but we start off today with the fact that she is currently the Provost Fellow for Public Affairs. We talk about the Public Affairs Conference, which is coming up later this month, September 20th through the 22nd. The theme for this year's conference is From Words to Deeds, Creating Collaborative Communities. The conference is free and open to the public, and you can find a link to the conference schedule on the show notes and also on the university website. One interesting thing about the conference this semester is that the plenary speakers and the keynote speakers are going to be in-person events. However, the rest of the showcase sessions are going to be online in the form of live virtual events. In addition, the conference sessions are timed with the class schedule. And I think that's super convenient for the university community. Generally speaking, the sessions will start and end the same time a typical uh, university class might start and end. Also, it makes it possible to incorporate the sessions directly into classes as appropriate. Um, And so we talk about cool options to do that throughout our conversation. In addition to the Public Affairs Conference, we talk about careers in English literature, aesthetics, cancel culture, oversimplification of critical discourse, Dr. Seuss, and the question, can writers write characters who are demographically different from them? Finally, we talk about Dr. Wooden's classes and about the power of interdisciplinarity. And without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Dr. Shannon Wooden. Dr. Wooden, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm delighted to be here. So I see from the university website that you are this year's Provost's Fellow for Public Affairs. What duties does that involve? Well, the provost fellow is a faculty member that works with the public affairs support team to sort of design, kind of envision the annual conference in September. So I don't do most of the legwork, right? I can't say that I organize the conference, but I can interpret the theme of the conference and I can help to coordinate the committee that designs the panels and invites the speakers responsible for securing a couple of the plenary speakers and kind of giving shape and vision to the uh, to the conference, which is you know, always designed around a particular theme. Well, the task of interpreting a theme would be well suited to a literature professor. Uh, <laughs> I like it quite a bit, yes. <laughs> so this year's theme is from words to deeds. Could you um, unpack that theme for me a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. And what comes after the colon is important too. It's from words to deeds, building collaborative communities. Mm. And the public affairs team saw this as kind of third in a triptych. So a couple of years ago, the theme was about finding voice. And then last year it was bridging the divide so that when you find your voice, you can, you know, kind of reach across the aisle, so to speak, not, mm. not just politically, but but in all sorts of walks of life, so as to make your voice heard and to hear what other people have to say. And now we're kind of imagining how that, how those efforts could um, be translated into concrete problem solutions, right? So if we're going to put our words into deeds, 
if we're going to problem solve any of the really complicated problems that face our society, uh, it's going to require collaboration between different different types of thinking. It's going to require something that is richly and respectfully interdisciplinary. In outlining one of the big challenges the theme addresses, I saw where it emphasized the importance of um, interdisciplinary research in meaningful intellectual work between individuals, disciplines, colleges, and universities. Um, and your own work and your own um, sort of body of scholarship and areas of interest are very interdisciplinary as well. Is that right? Yes, I'm kind of all over the place. Yeah. I was trained in graduate school, I was trained as a, in Victorian literature. My specialty was Victorian literature. And my dissertation director uh, joked me, with me once that um, people whose thinking was all over the place tended to gravitate toward Victorian studies because it was sort of an inherently interdisciplinary field that you had to sort of be interested in history and you had to be interested in art and you had to be interested in you know, science. My dissertation is in Victorian science and novels. So, so yeah, oh. from the beginning, I guess, of my academic journey, I've been interested in the way that lots of different ways of thinking kind of intersect with one another. When with Victorian literature, are we talking about um, Charles Dickens? Um, yeah, yeah, you're exactly in the right in the right field. Like Charles Dickens is a wonderful example. You can love Charles Dickens as a novelist, but it's impossible to read most of his novels without paying real close attention to what was happening economically in Victorian history at the moment of its right. You sure. can't enjoy it sort of just as a story because the economics are all part of it and very deliberately and self-consciously so. So you, you could argue, I mean, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna say that Victorian literature is unique in that. I think most scholars of literature approach their texts in similarly interdisciplinary ways. But I, I offer that anecdote just by way of saying, I, I was never interested in only one thing. I can't remember uh, yes. a time when I was yes. interested in something that seemed sort of pure as an intellectual discipline. I've always been sort of all over the place. And I guess what, what appeals to me about it in terms of the public affairs theme is that, you know, for, for many, many years, I just sort of thought that was interesting. That's sort of the way my brain works. And it was interesting to follow those avenues wherever they led. But more and more, it feels to me absolutely necessary, completely urgent, that, that if you're not thinking in an interdisciplinary way, you're missing a lot of very important things. And it's not mm. almost ethical to, to just focus <laughs> so narrowly that you close your eyes to other ways of thinking, which is not to say that everybody needs to be interdisciplinary in their thinking. But I do think it means that everyone needs to allow for an interdisciplinarity in their work, which is kind of what I'm hoping to do with the conference. I love that. Right, the historians could come in and be historians. They don't have to also be economists, but I wanna put the historians in conversation with the economists, right? The people that do science don't also have to be the people who do race studies, but I want to put them in conversation with each other because if we're gonna to try to solve a yeah. problem that has an impact on society kind of writ large, then all of those voices have, a, have an investment, right? and a, a contribution yeah. to make to the solution. I can't remember where I saw this the other day, but some person, maybe an actor, um, had the quote that said, 
you can't connect the dots you haven't collected. Ah, nice, nice. Um, which, which I, I, that stuck with me, although the, like I said, whoever said it uh, has fallen out of my head, but, you know, I think of that with critical thinking instruction. You can't make connections between things you don't have, things you haven't learned yet. Um, but as far as interdisciplinary building goes, like um, all of us together are smarter than any one of us alone. And But if we're siloed and we never talk to each other, then we're not benefiting as much as we could. Exactly. One of the things that brings it home to me most forcefully or, or has brought it home for me most forcefully over the last few years is it, my emerging interest in disability. Uh, in addition to chairing the literature program, I chair the disability studies program as well. But you know, a little bit of reading in disability studies and you realize that something as simple as, you know, building ramps for people who use wheelchairs is not simply a project for architects or engineers, but it's taken decades of legal scholars and humanists and activists and people who write memoir and people who write law and policy and people who earmark money and people who design buildings, you know, there's even something as simple as building a ramp into a building has lots of different voices reflected in the decision to do that in the actual, in the actual construction, right? One of the things I'm excited about with the conference, um, so I, I've been in academic advising for the last couple of semesters and I'm continuing with that role, but I am back in the classroom as well in the fall. So I'll be teaching a class. Uh, I've, I noticed that a lot of the conference uh, sessions are on Zoom and, and they're conveniently timed with like the class schedule. Um, and so um, one of them, uh, I'm looking at the schedule right now at 1010 on Wednesday, the 21st of September, there's a panel called Educating for Active Citizenship in Diverse Times. Um, and so I don't see why we shouldn't just have a, a watch party in the classroom um, for, for, for sessions like this. Do you think that um, that's, was that done on purpose to make that yes. possible? Yes, I really hope a lot of people will feel that way. Whether it's, you know, give your students extra credit or we're not going to meet in physical space. We're just going to do this instead. Or your idea, I think is even better pandemic permitting. Let's all meet in the same space and participate in it together. Um, yeah, I think that's wonderful. A few right. years ago, the, the sessions were not organized around class times. And we changed that because it was inconvenient. A faculty member could sort of let their students go, but it only covered three quarters of the session and then students had to leave early to get to their next class or something like that yeah um, yeah I hope this is I hope this is a lot better but I really want for it to augment the um, the instruction that that we as a faculty are giving in our classrooms as well mm -hmm. the way these are built every college has two representatives on the committee and they design sessions that, that will be of specific significance to their college. But since we're focusing on interdisciplinarity, I mm. told the committee members at the beginning, you know, give me what you want your college to talk about. And then don't be surprised if the sessions merge and split a little differently so that your college will still be represented, but we will 
maybe try to represent your college also in other places. Interesting. And we will represent other voices in the session that you propose. So I, I think we've done a really good job of that. And I hope that means a lot of faculty will say that's a session that my students should attend, even if it's not the session that their college reps originally proposed, hmm. if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So someone in um, biomedical science might propose a session about healthcare, but in the healthcare session, we're also going to talk about racism and we're also going to talk about um, you know, body politics in a variety of ways. We're going to talk about, I yeah. mean, maybe narrative medicine, uh, exactly. which, <laughs> yes. which yeah. when I, when I saw that in, in, um, your work on that, it made me think of the communicative work in, in health because health communication is a growing field. And we have Fisher's narrative paradigm that talks about how humans are sense-making animals who need a story to understand exactly. like what's going on around them. And but yeah, in, in my case, as a example of what may be happening in other um, classes, yeah, like my listening class is all about the importance of listening to people with whom one might disagree. And here, like right during our meeting time, there's a session called Active Citizenship in Diverse Times. Like it just couldn't be better. And Absolutely. I'm sure that professors and instructors will be able to find similar convergences um, that, like you said, will augment what's going on in the classroom for the, for the student experience. Well, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I, I will admit to getting, unless I've got my note cards in front of me, I don't yet have all the speakers memorized in terms of who they are and what they represent. But at least one of the people in that session is a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker. One of the people uh, in that session is an MSU alum who um, works on political campaigns okay. now. I believe that one of them is an educator. Uh, yes, she works on global and immigrant families and participatory action research. Oh, wow. So again, a wide variety of voices mm -hmm. in that session on education, active citizenship, and divisiveness. It should be. I think it'll be great. I'm excited. Really about exciting. It. So I saw that you were the coordinator of the literature program. And so it, people major in English, there are two, is the word uh, tracks or emphasis areas. And one of, the, one of them is literature. So is that what we're talking about when we talk about the literature program? Uh, there are actually several um, okay. tracks in English. You can do English education. You can do professional technical oh. writing. You can do creative writing. You can do... Um, literature you can do uh, we have a TESOL program which is um, second language acquisition uh, we have rhetoric and composition but that's a graduate a graduate track um, and not an undergraduate track but yeah literature is one of the tracks in English um, nice and we do we partner quite a bit with creative writing so literature and creative writing share a core and then there's specific classes you take if you want to be a, a literature major and specific classes you take from that core if you want to be a creative writing major. Makes sense. So yeah, I coordinate the literature part of that. And we work closely with creative writing and we're one of, like I say, five tracks in the, in the English department. I had a question about careers for graduates. Um, I saw on the, on the literature program's webpage about careers, it, it had the um, the pithy phrase, 
Pursuing a degree in English literature prepares you for a meaningful career path rather than just a job. I love that. I was wondering if you could illuminate that for us a little bit. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> this is a tricky one because to do literature professionally is um, very difficult. The only ways to do literature professionally really are to teach it or write it. Mm -hmm. So we're not in the business of doing very much specific professional training. But as you say, um, as you said, when we were talking about narrative medicine, we are sense making animals. I like that phrase. And we make sense by stories. Hmm. So to study literature is a way of studying how the world works. We study literature um, by way of becoming experts in language, which is very uh, necessary to nearly all careers. We study literature to attend very carefully to people, whether they're characters drawn from imagination or whether they are authors creating. We study literature, uh, first and foremost, in my opinion, to study narrative shapes. What are the stories mm. that we tell? What are the stories that are, any given culture prefers? What are the stories that make us uncomfortable? The stories that soothe us? What stories do we teach our children over and over again? What are the stories of illness that we prefer over other stories of illness? And how do those stories kind of um, accurately reflect the lived experiences of people? Hmm. What I'm doing with disability studies, how are the stories that we've told of disability for the last several hundred years counterproductive to rich and full lives for people with disabilities? Hmm. And how can we revisit those narrative shapes, right? How can we, again, to extend it out, how can we differently imagine the characters whose stories we want to tell how can we attend differently to our linguistic choices so as to shape the world into a better place to be, right? Yes. So when we talk about college majors, we, we can't get, we're not allowed to get very far away from this question of what are you going to do with that professionally, right? <laughs> Would you major in this instead of major in something else? Right. And literature is an, is an artistic field in a way. I mean, we, we are a humanities field. Um, but we're a humanities field that makes no apologies for its um, pleasure in aesthetics, right? Instead of, instead of concrete job training. I just can't help but believe that the work we do in literature enriches our students' understandings of how the world works so that wherever they end up working, that attention to language, that attention to narrative shapes, that attention to character building, in addition to things like writing and research, right? Set them up to be able to do any job very, very richly and very, very wisely and very, very well. Exactly. I was thinking about the pleasure of aesthetics back when we were talking about the like ethical imperative of mm -hmm. interdisciplinary work, because in order to really appreciate or enjoy something, it's a lot of work <laughs> to really understand the, the to to extract right. the full essence. You to get the nuances, you need the context and the history yeah. and stuff. And um, well, something else that's tricky, and this goes back to my interest in Disney and Pixar. Something else that can be really tricky is to unpack your own pleasure. Hmm. Right? I enjoy this, 
Therefore, maybe I want to jam my fingers in my ears instead of paying attention to the ways <laughs> that it is problematic, mm, right? Mm, mm. Here's the thing that I enjoy. Can I continue to enjoy it if somebody points out that it has not aged well in terms mm. of its representation of race or gender or something like that? Mm. For most people who are not trained in humanities, criticism, those conversations get oversimplified yes. to cancel culture, mm. right? If we learn to unpack and understand and critique how the texts work, how we engage with them, and how such engagement generates a kind of non-critical pleasure, right? Then we can be a lot more selective about how and why we perpetuate various narratives. That was a real wordy way of saying, I'm talking about Dr. Seuss. I mean, in part, I'm talking about Dr. Seuss. I had a conversation recently um, with a person who was not an academic about canceling Dr. Seuss. And okay. I was saying, I'm not canceling Dr. Seuss. There are a couple of books that have not aged well and the uh, illustrations in them got the attention of the, the Seuss, whatever, family. Mm. And they've said, you know what? Maybe we're going to pull these books from the shelves because they have sort of overtly racist depictions of people that have not aged well, right? And this person was like, cancel Dr. Seuss or don't cancel Dr. Seuss because either we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which she thought was a terrible idea, or we just embrace this problematic body of work because it reminds us of our childhoods and makes us feel all that nostalgic pleasure that is threatened if mm. we point out anything that is problematic, right? Great example. So we need critics. Yeah. We need critics in there to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody's trying to ruin your childhood or throw out your memories, but nostalgia itself needs to be unpacked a little bit. The nostalgic pleasure you have for those texts needs to be unpacked a little bit. If we really want to understand how these various stories and how these various images perpetuate certain ideas into the future, whether we want them to or not. I have the cat in the hat comes back memorized to this day because I read it so much. And I, I love how um, this is nerdy, but so in that book, the snow gets more and more like pink uh -huh. um, and things get worse and worse and worse. And every time you try to fix it, it causes another problem. Uh, I feel like there's so many great lessons in that. And then the way it was eventually solved is interesting. But the versions I had of those books growing up, I, I did some research on this when this uh, sort of cancel culture conversation first came out. And the books I had 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 illustrations that had already been toned down once, but were still very racist. So there were like a couple of attempts at fixing it that weren't effective. Right. You know, I know now from having raised kids, surprise, surprise, they're not dumb. Kids can be taught all kinds of things from there's nothing wrong with this. It's your heritage. Who cares if it's racist to, huh, look at that image. Do you think that that image is, you know, this book was written in 1935. Do you think that's an image that would still play today? Does it seem like a respectful depiction of, of you know, this Asian person or, you know, kids yeah. are really smart. They, all they need is to have it explained to them, right? Yeah. They don't need anybody to get canceled. They just need for maybe the problematic rhetoric to not keep getting normalized generation after generation after generation. So at somebody, at the, somebody somewhere 
needs to be able to um, to mount a sort of intervention in that forward momentum, right? Mm -hmm. But right now we live in this really politically divisive space where any intervention is gonna be interpret interpreted as canceling. Hmm. So I, I don't know, I, I think it takes, it takes a particular kind of intellectual training to be able to productively have these conversations you know, to nuance these conversations, to, to listen, as you say, to listen carefully and then be able to collaborate toward, like we were saying, the public affairs and actual solution. Well, that's a great segue into a question I have about pedagogy in ah. literature. In your bio on your faculty page, I saw a clause that conceptualized empathic reading mm -hmm. as a worthy goal for literary pedagogy. And so I was interested in that concept of empathic reading. What is that? What does that mean? For me, that all started with my kind of foray into narrative medicine. Okay. The idea that when we read, we are engaged in a kind of collaborative work with people, be they, uh, you know, quote unquote real or quote unquote fictional people. I put quotes around those because I think fictional people are real people, but I know that's not what's typically meant by those words. Um, <laughs> I want to so, talk more about that now. <laughs> the way we would expect somebody providing healthcare to be compassionate mm. for us in a comprehensive way is a similar way that we should approach the people that we are encountering when we read text. And this can be like a written text or... Um... Are there any other ways to conceptualize? Oh, sure. We could, with characters in movies or, or mm -hmm. characters as they are presented in memoir, even though that takes us into that place with quotes around real and quotes around yeah. fictional again, sure. Um, you know, in some of my best experiences teaching, students have approached me sometimes months and years after the fact, but sometimes just a couple of days after the fact to say versions of the way we talked about that story so it helped me um, help me relate differently to my mother hmm. or the way we talked about that story. It came to bear on an argument I had with my spouse or the way we talked about, you know, absolutely. And for me personally, the way I read stories absolutely affects the way I understand my children. I think that there are ways of teaching yourself to read as generously and empathically as possible so that when you approach everybody, you can be as receptive to the details of their story as possible. Hmm. And I guess that's what I mean by empathic reading. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with everybody because there's a critical aspect to it too, of course. The story is written so that there is, um, you know, a, a conventional protagonist doing conventional protagonist things, but that character is also deeply flawed the author wants us to see both the flaws and the, you know, heroic is in modern literature seldom the right word, but but uh, yeah. certainly we have to keep reading, right? We have to we have to imbue this person with enough um, positive energy to keep us reading the book. But yeah, you've got to be able to really understand that character sort of warts and all. Mm. If you can also do that to secondary characters and you can also do that to villains, yeah. not only are you looking at very, very, very well-written literature that affords all those possibilities, but you're really doing something wonderfully and imaginatively morally stretchy with your mind so that when you encounter a 
real world problem, you can say, what is this character probably motivated by? And what is this character possibly contributing? So that, you know, your, your, what, your encounter is not simple. If you ever run into a little boy who's maybe blowing up a toy with a firework, you might think maybe this kid is not just a pyromaniac. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you don't just immediately go, where is his mother? This is a bad child, right? right. This is a bad child who's badly parented. Mm-hmm. You might say, what else is going on with this just kid? A precocious, yeah. What does he know, right? What does he know? What does he think he knows? What, what does, does he not he know? <laughs> right, what does he not know? What does he need, right? Yeah. And that, to me, that, that absolutely informs the work I do with disability studies as well. Learning to say, you know, who, who is in front of me? What do they want? What do they need? And how can I help? Is exactly, I think, the way we should approach disability inclusivity as well. It's not a, do you have a form that tells me the minimum accommodations I need to make? Mm. Instead, I'm like, who is in front of me? And what do they need? And what can I do to help? Um, I should go ahead and tag for listeners who might not know, we're, when we were talking about Sid just now, that was a reference to your, oh. 20, your 2014 book, Pixar's Boy Stories, Masculinity in a Postmodern Age. Thank you. Yeah. I knew right where you were going. <laughs> I love Sid. I've, I've heard people argue, people who love film, for example, say, watching films is a way to try to gain more experiences than they otherwise personally have, you know? I don't know if they're like living in, um, what's the word, vicariously through, through the screen, but, but still just trying to broaden their mind and, their perspe- and open themselves to perspectives they may not otherwise uh, be exposed to. There is a question that I've seen debated uh, in the media about whether uh, one can write whether one has license to write a, a book where the main characters are different than the author. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have, a, you want to weigh in on that? Oh, sure. Um, you asked two different questions, whether authors can and whether author, authors have license to. Yes. And I think that those are different things. Well, we know they can. We know they can. They do. Exactly. Well, yeah. and they can, I think they can well, mm. whether they're allowed to, in the mm. court of public opinion or not. Um, so the best authors can write all the people, I think. The best authors can write all the people. And I mean can specifically, whether they may or may not, that's not up to me, but certainly can. Because imagination and research and a combination of imagination and research is limitless. Moreover, I think the best writers need to because despite what you're told as an undergraduate to write what you know, nobody wants to hear, you know. My boring life. <laughs> over and over and over and over again, right? Yeah. If I'm only going to write as a middle-aged woman, I'm going to write middle-aged woman after middle-aged woman after middle-aged woman after middle-aged white woman, non-disabled middle-aged white woman. I'm going to do that over and over and over again. But first of all, that's not really what's meant by that advice, mm. even though that's sometimes the way that it's interpreted. And secondly, as I say, the best of writers with that combination of powerful imagination and uh, I'm going to call it research, whether it's formal research or whether it's just lived experience and sort of osmotically, you know, osmotic research, um, those writers have the tools to show us lots and lots of different experiences 
right? I'm thinking about a book by a writer named Zadie Smith, who is a Black British woman. Um, the book I'm thinking about is called White Teeth. And it's got so many different characters in it, so mm. many different uh, ethnicities and ages, genders. She writes from teenage Muslim children, and she writes from an Afro-Caribbean woman, and she writes all over the place because they're all occupying the space. And the story is amazing. You think, what a shame if we told a person they couldn't write from another demographic, from another race or ethnicity, from another gender, because a book like that couldn't exist, right? And clearly the book does exist. The book is amazing. The book is wonderful because the writer is so richly imaginative yeah. and can understand so many different perspectives in a way that she can put them in, in a story together and, and make something profound. What is dangerous, what is dangerous is for a person to basically follow that advice of writing what they know, but then changing something like skin color mm. or disability status just to kind of superficially flesh out the population of their book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in disability studies, for instance, it's referred to as, um, you know, the non-disabled fantasy of disability. The disabled character written from the non-disabled author is sometimes the non-disabled fantasy of what it's like to have a disability. And then we end up with characters who, who use wheelchairs who literally never think about anything except how wonderful it would be to walk. When the world is full of wheelchair users who are thinking about whether they left the oven on and whether they're going to get the promotion and whether their teenager hates them this week. And people in wheelchairs have full minds full of all the other things that all of our minds are full of. If you're trying to write a point of view, but you're not really thinking about what it's like to be that person, then all you're doing is projecting. Yeah. And if it's something like, you know, especially if you are in a privileged class, if you are the white, non-disabled boys, then you're imagining what it must be like to be that other person can actually just be a projection of how hard you think it would be to give up your privilege hmm. when the actual lived experience of being that person may not have anything to do with you or your privilege. Right. <laughs> they have an entirely unique uh, experience. So with enough imagination and enough work, you can write that character, but you can't just take yourself and change your skin color or change your gender presentation or stick yourself in a wheelchair and make it into a, a richly or empathically drawn figure. Does that answer your question, Kaina? Absolutely. It sounds like, so for the, the literary criticism can't just be um, rigidly rule-based, yes, an author can, no, an author can't or may right. not, but, right. but it's outcome focused. Like, is this text... A problematic in its depictions or are they um not right 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 if if as a woman i'm reading a female character does she ring true to me as a woman mm. if she does ring true to me as a woman and i can put myself in her shoes even though we may be nothing at all alike she doesn't need to be like me for me to put myself in her shoes but if she mm. rings true then it doesn't matter to me who wrote her not really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the best writers can write across the aisle, I think. Yeah. And they have to be able to, or else our, our literature becomes really, really um, deprived. Yeah. Yeah. 
maybe I should emphasize that when it's done badly, it's done really, really badly. And especially inexperienced raters can come off as not just unsuccessful, but, but actually very offensive mm-hmm. if they're not real careful. Something else from the website, the English website said, the National Association of College and Employers notes, quote, uh, what sets two equally qualified job candidates apart can be as simple as who has better communication skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I was gratified as a communication academic advisor to see that language in yeah. some other departments. Uh, <laughs> Um, literature. Well, I, I do the um, I do scholarship interviews every year as mm. well, and the students that tend to do really well in the scholarship interviews are um, debaters and musical theater. Nice, right? Go yeah. Cole. That's right. That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> they communicate well. They're poised. They're well spoken. They've got a broad vocabulary. They can reflect on. Uh, questions from a number of perspectives. They can think answer. on their feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that impresses me is when a person hears the question and is able to say, actually, there are a couple of different ways I'd like to approach that. And they give us more than one answer, right? You say, what's your favorite mm-hmm. book? And they say, well, my favorite for this is this, but my favorite for this other is this, right? The one that I yeah. enjoyed the most was this, but the one that left me thinking the longest was this instead of just throwing out a title and then not not knowing what else to say about it. Yeah, might as well demonstrate some cognitive complexity, and, you know. Beautifully said, cognitive <laughs> complexity, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I feel like our departments do that. I think our departments do that really well. I think Cole does that really well across the board. Yeah. Um, I see that you teach a, a variety of classes and um, looking only at the spring just passed and in the fall, you had uh, classes including, uh, and these are, these are both graduate and undergraduate classes mixed together, uh, critical theories, uh, introduction to disability studies, introduction to research um, studies in literature, topics in disability studies. And you teach other classes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any that you, are you're particularly excited about um, in this go round? I love teaching. Well, everything you just listed, I love teaching, with the exception of research methods, which I haven't taught yet. So get back with me in six months, and I will have loved teaching it. Probably, oh, I don't very know cool. yet because I've never done it before. Um, the the range in a, in a semester when I'm teaching disability studies one hundred and critical theory, which is a graduate level class for our master's students, the range is pretty extraordinary. I get first and second semester non-majors, and I get graduate students just about to go on to PhD programs, Mm. you know? So it's a Mm -hmm. wide, wide, wide range of skills. I am always impressed at how much intellectual overlap I find between those fields and enthusiasm across populations for the subject matter. So that feels, it might look on paper like it's not at all integrated, but it feels to me sort of beautifully integrated. It's like my whole career in a, in a nutshell. I love teaching disability studies because you can point out um, fairly, I mean, once you think about them, they seem very obvious, but nobody's thought about them before. So you can point out fairly easy concepts 
and just watch the light bulbs go on across the room. Ping, 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 right? People yeah, are going, yeah. wow, I've spent my whole life thinking in one way. And all it takes is a little bit of redirection. And I go, holy cow, I can see the world in a dramatically different way. Mm. In critical theory, it's a much deeper dive, but it's very similar work, right? So here is something that you hold to be true. And when you read a book, you bring this truth to the book. Mm. Where did that idea come from? Where did the, the book itself claim its authority? Where in the history of Western civilization did these ideas of normalcy, of literacy, of your role as a reader, of the author's role as a writer, of the centrality and culture of the text, etc. You know, where did all those things come from? Hmm. And we do a deep dive into some theorists who have explored those concepts and the lights come on and they think, I'm going to look differently at the world now than I used to. I'm going to look differently at normalcy. I'm going to look differently at literacy or social class or gender construction or education or narrative or whatever right Mm. love doing that work it sounds sounds rewarding rewarding classes to teach and and to take as well (laughs) very very fun that concludes this episode of our cold conversations Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the show on social media. You can follow the college on Facebook at msu.rcole and on Twitter at msu underscore rcole. And if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear about on the podcast, please let me know. You can get a hold of me at jhoward at missouristate.edu. Thanks so much for listening.